And you guys are singing out here this morning. Sound amazing. Turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 12. We're going to be looking at uh, verses 13 uh, to 34 this morning. I want to dismiss also our middle schoolers. Uh, we have worship hour available for them. They stay in here and hang out and worship with us and then exit and go over to the student ministry building. So if there's any middle schoolers hanging around, they can head over uh, to that building. As you're turning to Mark chapter 12, we're looking at, uh, again, verses 13 to 34. I wanted to have a few uh, gentlemen in our church stand. Uh, Rick... Donnie, who have served as elders here at North Bullet Christian Church. Donnie, if you could stand. I know you don't like the attention, buddy, but stand back there. And then Steve Foster, who has served as a deacon. Uh, these guys have are on sabbatical. They're taking a little bit of a rest from uh, those posts after years and years of service. And I think it's so important uh, for the body of Christ, for the church to acknowledge and thank these men of integrity and faith and leadership for their service and dedication to North Bullet Christian Church. And so So if you guys would put your hands together for them, give them a round of applause. Men, we we thank you, and we thank you for stepping forward and leading, especially in these past few years. Uh, There were some some rough seasons in there. You guys have stood with this church and led well and loved your people well, most importantly. And so we we appreciate you guys, and we thank you for your service and dedication to our ministry. Uh, With that, let's pray together, and then uh, we will get into God's Word. Heavenly Father, we do love you. We thank you for your grace and your mercy. We thank you for this opportunity that we can gather together uh, this morning to worship our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Uh, We thank you for the the means of grace that you have given us in gathering with the saints uh, to bring you glory and honor. Lord, we pray as we receive your word this morning. Lord, that you would sanctify us, that that you would grow us, that you would open our hearts and our minds to receive your goodness and grace, that we would walk in step with your Holy Spirit. We pray these things through the power and the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, and all of God's people said, Amen. All right, 12, 13 to 34. I am warning you ahead of time uh, because I ran right up against it at the last uh, service. We're going a little bit today, so if you're on Facebook, pop some popcorn, hang with us. We got a lot of ground uh, to cover. Also, we're taking three big passages and breaking those down this morning. We're not going to get to everything that's in those passages. We're leaving a little bit on the table this morning. We're going to dig a little bit under the surface of what these passages have for us, and I hope they are an encouragement to you this morning. So let's get into it. Verse 13, God's word says this, and they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. And they came and said to him, teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion for you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, Why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one. And he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. Verse 18. And the Sadducees now came to him, who say that there is no resurrection. The Sadducees didn't believe in a resurrection. And they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and when he died, left no offspring. And the second took her and died, leaving no offspring. And the third, likewise. And the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. So here's the question. In the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as wife. Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you are wrong? Hear this right here. Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And that is that they live forever. Verse 26, And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him saying this, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He's not the God of the dead, 
but of the living you are quite wrong. And now verse 28, one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another and seeing that he answered them well, asked him which commandment is most important of all. Jesus answered, the most important is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, you are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one and there is no other besides him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding, and with all the strength and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. This is the word of the Lord. Our main idea for this morning is this. Satisfaction in the promises and commands of God influence every aspect of our lives. Satisfaction, our satisfaction in the promises and commands of God influence every aspect of our lives. The three passages linked together provide insight into a few practical applications of the gospel in everyday life. The surface level teachings are are apparent within these passages on taxes and the resurrection. And today we'll we'll clearly define these teachings, but also dig into the application, the underlying application of being satisfied in the promises and commands of God. The heart of Jesus' opponents is on display here. Are, are Are they looking to elevate Jesus or destroy him and try to trick him? Right? The religious leaders are trying to trick Jesus, aren't they? They truly do not seek to understand him and his teaching. With the exception, maybe perhaps the scribe at the end seems to be seeking Jesus and his teachings. The one who asked the the question of the most important command. Regardless, we have some quick practical information for our growth in Christ. So we have two questions and two commands before us. Now, some background. The Sanhedrin, we learned about last week, this is the group of religious leaders in Jerusalem. Uh, They've enlisted a few of, I think what we have here is kind of their underlings, a few uh, sacrificial lambs to send over to Jesus. Hey, go, guys, go ask these questions. So they go and ask Jesus. They're not satisfied with Jesus. They're not satisfied with his teaching and they're they're certainly not satisfied with with the authority that he has and he has he has displayed but Christian I want you to hear this this morning we must be we must be satisfied with the promises and command of God which we're going to draw out of this text this morning they will influence and they should influence every aspect of our lives every aspect digging beneath the surface of the teaching in this section we realize That our faith impacts each and every facet of life. And we are to find satisfaction in the promises and commands of God. Pastor John Piper says it this way. It's probably his, his most famous quote. He says, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. So the question stands before us this morning. Are we satisfied in the promises and commands of God as revealed in his word, the Bible? And has this permeated, has this infiltrated all aspects of your life? Your family, your job, your hobbies, your relationships, your social media accounts. I love uh, food. You guys know that. Uh, I love to, on my day off, smoke meat on a smoker. Now, I have to admit, before you're impressed by that, because of all the time and energy I put into stoking the fire and, and smoking that glorious pork butt on the grill, I'm a cheater, okay? I'm a cheater when it comes to smoking. I actually bought an electric grill that has a hopper on it that I just load these little hardwood pallets in there that are, you know, maple or hickory or oak or mesquite, I put them in there, I dial in the temperature digitally, and it just feeds those in there and maintains the temperature all day long with the smoke wafting up into the meat. 
And at the end of the day, when I pull that meat off, I go out there every couple hours, open it, draw in that smoky goodness, bring off the meat, slice into it. And what do you have within the meat when it's been smoking all day long? You have a glorious smoke ring, right? That smoke, if you, if you cut into a piece of pork, maybe a pork loin, and it's been smoking, you'll see this pink ring throughout the meat. And as you eat each, uh, each bite out of that, you can taste that smoky goodness coming out of the meat. The, the smoke has permeated and infiltrated every ounce of that meat so that you don't even really have to season it all that much because the smoke adds all that flavor. And so I want to ask you this question. When we think about God's promises and commands, have they, have you just smoked within those? Have they infiltrated you? Do you have that nice little pink smoke ring around you with God's promises and commands that they have infiltrated and permeated every ounce of who you are? The smoky goodness is just coming out of you. Because I want you to hear this. There, there is no sacred or secular divide. God's commands and promises are in everything that we do as a follower of Christ. You don't just have some section of your life that you keep off to the side. This is my secular thing and then this is the sacred stuff. It's all Christ. It's all under his sovereign rule. Our jobs, they're under the sovereign rule of Christ. Our families, under the sovereign rule of Jesus. Our spiritual life, under the sovereign rule of our Messiah. It's why Dutch theologian Abraham Kuyper declares these words, There is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry this word, Mine. That is mine. It's the same in our, we want to keep one section off to the side. This is my little secret area. Christ is over that. He sees all. He knows all. The religious leaders refuse to relinquish control. They refuse to acknowledge God's intervention in the history of Israel. They refuse to repent. They refuse to see the goodness and grace of Jesus, his lordship, And his salvation. And so we dig into the text before us, and we're going to draw out three points from each of these three passages. Three points. Number one, satisfaction in giving ourselves to God. Satisfaction in giving ourselves to God. Let me remind you of this first passage that we tackle, uh, verses 13 to 17. The Pharisees and the Herodians are challenging Jesus on taxes. Okay, now a little bit of background here. Uh, the Pharisees and Herodians didn't like each other. Uh, they were, in fact, basically enemies. Okay, the, Her- the Herodians were, were friendly with the government. The Pharisees, not so much so. And yet, The enemy of my enemy is what? Is my friend. And so they join forces together and they come to Jesus trying to trick him on this question of taxes. And so Jesus, once they ask this question, goes back at them and ask them for one of the coins that they're talking about for taxes. And we pick up the story in verse 16. It says, and they brought one, that is one of the denarius, And he said to them, whose likeness and inscription is on this coin? So I want you to imagine this coin he's looking at. They said to him, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, these words, render to Caesar the the things that are Caesar's. And the last part I really want you to focus on, and to God the things that are God's. And to God the things that are that are God's. And they marveled at him because they thought they had him. They thought they had Jesus on this question. And yet Jesus, he doesn't evade the question. He, he answers the question and also places our focus, not on just that, that is peripheral around us, the government in our life, but also that which is vertical, our relationship with God, render to God, the things that are God's. A quick practical teaching from this section is to give to the government what is theirs. If they demand taxes, pay them. There's also a, a bit of irony in this, in this confrontation. A bit of history here, a little bit of background. 
There was in this area a special tax levied uh, against the Jews in Jerusalem. It's called the poll tax. And I think that's what the teachers are asking or the Pharisees and the Herodians are asking about here. Uh, to me, in reading this text, it, the, the tax conveys God's judgment on Israel. They have broken their covenant with God. They are no longer uh, lords over their own promised land that God had, had given them. They have overlords. They have the Roman government over the top of them. And these overlords now are charging them taxes to live in the land that's supposed to be theirs. And on the very coin that they pay is who? It's the face of Caesar. Now, listen to this inscription on the coin. This is what the coin would have said. Tiberius Caesar Augustus, hear this, son of the divine Augustus. What does divine mean? God. Son of God. And if you flip the coin over, there would be another image on there, and it would say highest priest. The front side says son of God. The backside says, highest priest. What a slap in the face to the Jews. They don't control their land. They have to pay taxes to an an overlord. And the coins that they have to use have the image of Caesar. And the coins call him divine and high priest. But even more ironic is this. In the midst of of trying to entrap Jesus. Jesus doesn't have one of these coins on him. He asked them for a coin. One of them happens to have this, one of these little image-bearing coins in their pocket. And I believe that's an embarrassment to them that they would walk around with this coin in their pocket with Caesar's image on it, saying that he is the son of God, and on the backside saying that he is connected to the high priest. Jews were not allowed within their own religious law to have images. They were forbidden to have graven images in their culture. They were not to worship trinkets and golden calves and were to rid themselves of any temptation to do so, even having a coin in their pocket. And yet when Jesus asked for the denarius, I'm assuming one of them have it, One of them has the coin in his pocket with the image of Caesar, which also declares that he is God and high priest. Basically, Jesus instructs in this passage, give the little idol back to the government if they want it back. Give them their idols. Pay it to them. And then digging a little bit deeper, he he says something right after that. Give to who? God. Give to God what is God's. Again, we find satisfaction in in giving every facet of our life over to God. Caesar may be able to collect his tax. Jesus affirms this. Again, give Caesar his little idol trinkets back. And also look to the one, capital O, the one who is greater than Caesar. Because who has ordained for Caesar to be in this place but God alone? The one who has placed Caesar in his position of power. Give yourself to God. Because just as the coin had the image of Caesar on it, hear this, you and I, human being, have the image and likeness of God upon us. The coin had the image of Caesar, give it to him. We are, as Genesis 1.26 says, made in the image and likeness of God. Give to God what is God's. If God is our creator and we are made in his image, set apart for his glory, then we are to bear his image and likeness within the creation. In other words, we can only find satisfaction in giving ourselves to God because it was the reason that we were made to glorify him, to reflect his glory in all creation, made in his image and likeness. It's why when you come across an unbeliever 
They are constantly seeking what? To fill the God-shaped hole in their heart. And they seek after it with sex and relationships and money and jobs. But what? They fail every single time. You can't fill the God-shaped hole in your heart with little g-gods. They only can be filled with the one true living God. People in unbelief are seeking purpose and meaning and fulfillment in everything else but God. But Paul says this, for those of us, we've been made in the image and likeness of God. Paul says this after he goes through the first 11 chapters of Romans, unveiling the redemptive plan of God to the church, preaching to them. He says this in Romans 12, 1 to 2. He says, I appeal to you. Therefore, he's calling on what he has just talked about for 11 chapters. Therefore, because of everything that Jesus has done. Brothers, by the mercies of God, this is what you should do. Present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world. Give the world their little idol trinkets, their little coins. Be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Give everything over to God. Surrender it to him. And only in that place of surrender, in that vulnerable and humble position, will you find satisfaction in your life when finally you relinquish control and say, God, it's yours. God, it's yours. I give it to you. Take it. How much does this apply in everyday life? All these little areas that we try to keep concealed from God. And so I ask you this this question, church. Have you given everything over to God? Is Christ the center of your marriage? Singles in the room. Do you find your relationship with Jesus Christ satisfying enough to you that you abstain from premarital relations. Do you find that? You see how practical this stuff is? Is living in the light of the gospel a source of power in your workplace? Your workplace is not a separate little entity away from God's sovereign rule. Are you a glory reflector in the workplace, around your coworkers, in the way that you work, by being a person of integrity, Give yourself to God. Render to God what is God's. Your whole life. And we find satisfaction in that. We find satisfaction in giving ourselves to God. Not one square inch of our lives withheld from him. Everything handed over to him. Everything handed over to him. Number two, our second point. We find satisfaction in the promise to come. Satisfaction in the promise to come. We not only find satisfaction in the instruction of the word, as we did in the last passage, we are instructed to give to God what is God's, give to Caesar what is Caesar, but we also find satisfaction and hope in the promises of Scripture. We see promises here in this conversation with the Sadducees. That promise is the promise of what? The resurrection. New life. We say this almost every week. We don't, we don't worship a Savior who is dead in the grave. We worship a Savior who is alive. He defeated death in the grave. He was resurrected physically. That happened in history. And so the Sadducees challenged Jesus with some far-fetched story. 
that hinges on the, on the teaching of, of Leverite marriage. I'm not getting into that this morning. Study that in your own Bible study this week. Have at it. The idea is, is that the Sadducees think that the teaching of the resurrection is foolishness. And they're trying to trap Jesus. And so we pick up the story in verse 24 to 27. Jesus is now responding to the Sadducees. And he said to them, is this not the reason you are wrong? Listen to the, he gives them two reasons why they're wrong. Hear the reason. Because you know neither the scriptures, there's reason number one, nor what? The power of God. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven, meaning they live forever. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, Jesus is referring to Exodus chapter 3, how God spoke to him saying these words, quote, I am the God of Abraham, the present sense, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. And then he, Jesus says this, he is not the God of the dead, but what? But of the living. The surface level teaching of this passage, just real quick, I want to hit on this. The quick takeaway is that in the new heavens and new earth, so at the end of, of things, it's going to be different than this present life. That's what Jesus is teaching. You guys think that life just continues on, but things are going to change drastically. Why? Because Christ is going to come back and make all things new. And so in that consummated kingdom of God, it's not just a mere continuation of life as we understand it with marriage. In essence, at that point, there is no more death now. There's no more death in that time. So there's no need for marriage because what's the primary purpose behind marriage is to procreate and multiply and fill the earth. No more death after the resurrection. There's no more need for procreation and marriage. Now, there is a deeper underlying promise found in this passage, the promise of the resurrection. The Sadducees were void of the hope of the resurrection. They were ignorant of it. Historically, there, there existed a division between the teachings of the Pharisees and the teachings of the, of the Sadducees. The Pharisees believed in the resurrection. Why? Because the Pharisees actually believed what we have as our Old Testament. They believed all of that was the authoritative word of God. And they drew from those teachings this concept of resurrection, which we affirm. Now, the Sadducees believed only in the books of Moses as being authoritative. What are the books of Moses? Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. That's what they believed was authoritative, the first five books of the Bible. And from there, they had concluded that there was no teaching uh, of the resurrection. The rest of the Old Testament to them was just good advice. You got some Proverbs in there. And history. So Jesus, this is what's brilliant about Jesus when he's conversing with them. In his brilliance, he, teach, he says, okay, you only affirm uh, the Pentateuch, the Torah, the first five books of the Bible as authoritative. I'll teach you the resurrection from there. He recalls the book of Moses. I love this. It says the passage of the bush. Why? Because there's not chapter and verse yet in the Bible. Those were later on. Where is this at? Exodus 3, if you want to read it later today. You have God coming to Moses in a, in a bush that burns and is not consumed. He declares that God's promise is what? To the living, not the dead. What is that promise? Here's the promise. God promised that through Abraham, if you recall your Old Testament history, God promised that through Abraham, all the world, what, would be blessed. He made a covenant with Abraham. And his descendants, one of the promises, that is, his descendants would be as numerous as the stars in the sky. But how could this, this is the question, how could this be a great promise and blessing if Abraham is dead? And his descendants are dead. Jesus says what? 
God is not the God of the dead. He's the God of the living. Praise God, that's good news. And so here we have the promise of the resurrection. Jesus now fleshes that out for us. And see, church, this is some application here. This is the importance of scriptural knowledge, of of plumbing the depths of God's word. The Sadducees hadn't done that. And understanding also, he says, they don't know the power of God. Understanding the power of God, church, that is within us. The Sadducees missed it, and they were the experts, supposedly, in scriptural knowledge. Because they didn't really know the scriptures. Because if they knew the scriptures, they would know that this God-man standing before them was the Messiah of the world. But what? They were blind to it. If they really knew the power of God, they would know that what stands before them is God in the flesh. They were blind to it. God is not the God of the dead. He's the God of the living. They found no satisfaction in the word of God. They found no satisfaction in the power of God. And the proof is right in front of them. They don't even know who God is. Christian, if you don't walk away with anything else this morning, walk away with this. We must know the word of God. We must feast on God's word. We must know the power that is within us. You have God's Holy Spirit within you. The Bible says that the same power that resurrected Jesus from the dead is within you, Christian. It's the Spirit of God. And the Bible affirms this, our God is a God of life, not death. And we would know this promise and scriptural truth if we consumed God's word as we should. And so I want, I want to challenge you on that. And pray and step with the power of God's spirit within us. Call out to God. Whenever I do a a funeral, a graveside specifically of a follower of Christ who has passed on, I read 1 Corinthians 15, 53 to 57 because it's so hopeful Paul doesn't seem much like a singer, but it's so hopeful that Paul burst out into song in this passage. Burst out into into boastful praising of God. He says this in verses 53 to 57, For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, Paul's talking about resurrection here puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written. Then Paul burst into this boast. He says, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? He taunts death. He taunts death. Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us what? The victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Church, this is good news. God promises that we will be physically raised from the dead. But we don't just wait and hope for that promise. The promise isn't only futurist. It's, only, it's not only in the future. But presently, in this present time, for those who have called upon the name of Christ, you have been spiritually resurrected from the dead. The Bible says this. That we were dead in our transgressions and sin. But God made us alive with Christ by grace. And hear this. And raised us with him in the heavenly places. And has seated us with Christ. 
That's your position in Christ. You have been spiritually resurrected from the dead. Our spiritual position before Jesus was one of death, and now our spiritual position in Christ is this. It's one of life. Man, you guys should be beaming. You should be smiling right now. We weren't kind of dead spiritually, but we were dead dead. And Jesus breathed life into us and has raised us to new life. This is the the significance of of the outward sign of our our new life in baptism. It's why we baptize new believers. Our baptism is an outward sign of our inward transformation. We've been transformed inside from God's spirit awakening us. And so symbolically, we are laid back into the water. We're brought down under the water and we're brought, signifying death. And then we're, we're brought back out of the water, signifying our new life, our resurrected life in Christ. So Christian, do you find satisfaction in the promise of what you have? You have that right now. You have spiritual resurrection. You've been raised to new life in Christ, but you also have the hope of the future, which is eternal life with God. You have the hope of the future that when you wake up and it's 20 degrees outside and your joints are popping and your body's falling apart, that God's going to give you a new body. Lastly, number three, satisfaction in the command of God. Satisfaction in the command of God. So the scribe comes and asks Jesus what the greatest commandment is. This is common practice with the rabbis in the time they would hash out. There's so many commands in scripture like, what is the most important? Jesus answers, verse 12 to 30, or 29 to 31. The most important is this. Jesus quotes scripture here. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with, I want you to underline this, all. All your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. Then he gives them this one for free. The second is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. He almost merges them there. There's no other commandment. You can't love God and not love other people. If you sit here this morning and you have ever asked this question, what is the purpose of my life? What am I here for? Or maybe you've asked this, like we talk about obedience, obeying God. What is obedience to God look like? Jesus summarizes it right here. Love God with everything and love others. Love God with everything and love other people. That's it. He answers the scribe with, with scripture. Uh, I want you this week to dwell on Deuteronomy 6, 4 to 9. Read that passage every day if you can. It's the most important section of scripture to Jewish life. And that's what Jesus quotes here. Hero Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Theologically, it's, it's an incredibly rich passage because it declares and Jesus affirms as truth that there is what? One God. There is one God. We affirm at this church that there is one God. And Jesus does so here when he says the Lord is what? One. And practically, now let's apply this practically. You shall love God with all. Okay? Now, In the original language, all means what? All. Okay, everything. (laughs) There's nothing else there. Okay, no half measures. I'm I'm a guy, again, I'm on the the food illustrations this morning. I love full-flavored food. Give me some flavor. Daniel's a young man that comes to our 9 o'clock service and comes and hangs out at our house every once in a while. He made a, a jambalaya last, or a few weeks ago, whenever the Super Bowl was. And that was a boring game, wasn't it? Anyways. He makes this jambalaya. I mean, it's got every flavor you could imagine in there. Just popping. I loved it because it's full of flavor. No half measures. It was all there. Every flavor you could think of. Don't skimp on the seasonings, right? You give me a steak, the thing better be salted. 
Salt it heavily, please. Bland food is not good food. Sorry if you enjoy bland food. Give me taste, give me salt, give me the flavor, give me all of it, all of that stuff. I love bold food. God wants all of it. When he says all, he wants everything. He doesn't want half salt, he wants it all salted. He says this, he wants all of your heart. Our heart in scripture is the command station of our body. The heart is the center of our life. God's saying, I want all of that. He says, all of your soul. The soul in scripture is is the place where life springs from vitality. That's the picture we have there. Life comes out of the soul. The soul is what's living. It's the motivating power that God breathed into us. And so what he's saying is every breath and every step in life and and breath you take is for God. It is all for him. He says, mind, all our mind, all of our mind, the way that we perceive things. Okay, we're not just emotionally attached to God. There's too much emotional Christianity these days. I'm just looking for an emotional experience. And, and when I don't feel that, then I don't, I don't know where God's at. But really, truly understanding who God is and how much he loves us. Knowing that even though you may not feel like you're in Christ, we talked about our position in Christ. His word says that we're, we're seated with him in the heavenly realms. We are spiritually resurrected. We are seated there, and that's never ripped away from us. Through the power of the spirit within us, we are persevering in Christ, knowing that truth, even though sometimes I don't feel like that's the truth. So we love God with all of our mind. We're not just emotionally attached to God. We have a love for him that infiltrates our minds, our thought processes. In other words, our relationship of God with God is not just based on a good vibe. I got a good vibe today, God but from a deep, reasonable perception of who God is and what he has done. We believe with our intellect and thoughts, and this directs our opinions about the world and the way that we interact with each other. We draw that from truth, and we think about those things. Does that make sense in light of the word of God? Does that make sense in light of the attributes of God? Lastly, we're called to love God with all of our strength. In other words, all of our, our physical abilities. Now, now this is capturing what we do, how we act, our actions. Our love for God is not just kept in our mind or our emotions, but is conveyed in the way that we act. Do we act like a follower of Christ? And what's beautiful is Jesus now ties this into the way that we interact with other people. We love others as we love ourselves. You do that through action. If I just tell somebody I love them and they're starving to death and I don't feed them, do I truly love them? No, I have to act on that. Do we love others as we love ourselves? 1 John is full of this teaching. John, uh, 1 John 3, 11, and then we'll skip to verses 16 to 18. It says this, For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. I want to pause there for just a second. The, the reason why the Israelites were, were so distinctive, one of the reasons why is because they were called by God, they were commanded by God to love the poor and the sojourner. Within God's law was written uh, areas where they, they wouldn't plow or reap the harvest so that if a sojourner came through that they could, they could pick and eat and have food. It was something distinctive. Every other culture was selfish and hoarding, but but the Jews were supposed to be a people that were giving and generous and cared for the poor and the foreigner. And so John says, "For, for this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that what? That we should love one another. 
Then he gives a beautiful example of love, Jesus, in verse 16. By this we know love, that he, who is the he he's talking about here? Jesus. That Jesus, hear this, laid down his life for us. We know, I want to pause here again. We know that God loves us because he did something about his love. He sent his one and only son, Jesus Christ. He didn't just sit from afar and say, I hope it works out for you guys. You really messed this situation up. But he came in the person and work of Jesus and he took on flesh. Love came down to us. John continues and he says, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? How are you an image bearer? How are you in the likeness of God if you just shun the person who needs something and just walk away? How can you do that? He says this, little children, let us not love in word or talk, what? But in deed and in truth. Do something. When you say you love others, do something. If love came down to us, then we should, then should we not reflect this type of love in our relationships with other people? Should we not reflect the love of Christ in, in, in our marriage covenant, husbands and wives? Should we not love others physically in our neighborhood? The church, when was the last time you shared the gospel with somebody in your neighborhood? I was so convicted of this this week. When was the last time I went and got to know my neighbor? How about the poor? Do we love others? How about the, the EGR? You guys know what an EGR is? Everybody's got a little EGR in their life. Extra grace required people. You guys know what I'm talking about? You know, the, the, you, every, come on now. Everybody's got a little bit of an EGR person in their life, right? Like, oh, it just takes a little bit of extra grace to deal with this person. God has called you to love that person too. That's why I love you, sister. <laughs> God's called you to love the unbeliever. He's called you to love the unbeliever. Again, when was the last time you shared the gospel with someone? When was the last time you shared what Jesus has done in your life? It's not cramming Jesus down their throat. Let me just tell you what Jesus has done for me. And then from there, let, let me tell you about his work. Now, now let's look to the Bible. Let's see, let's see what he's done. Let me share the gospel with you. Here's the gospel that God created us. He created us in his image and likeness. We were in relationship with him, but we sinned against God and we fell away. And sin has infected each and every subsequent human being that has ever been created or walked the face of this earth, except for one, Jesus Christ. And so God has this great plan of redemption. He sent his one and only son, his beloved son, because he loves you. And his son perfectly obeyed the law and perfectly obeyed the will of his father to the point of death. He went to the cross for you and he died. And his death is an atoning death. It covers our sin if you will place your faith and trust in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And the gospel is also this, that God is restoring things. He is fixing things. He is spiritually resurrecting people towards looking forward to a physical resurrection when everything will be made perfect. No more sickness, no more pain, no more death. I've said this before. I'm tired of doing funerals. No more death. That's the promise of scripture. That's good news. And so we reflect on what love is. By this we know love. I want, I want to finish with this. 
that Jesus laid down his life for us. Jesus laid down his life for us. And I want us to dwell on that as, as the band comes forward and, and we reflect on this time in the service each and every week. We reflect on the fact that, that Jesus laid his life down for us. We do that through the Lord's Supper. It's a time where we remember the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. It's a great time if, if you haven't picked up uh, communion as you came in. There's cups on the table over there. You can feel free to run back there and grab one of those. We're going to spend some time uh, reflecting together on what Christ did for us. That he came in the world and that he lived the perfect life for us and that he died on the cross. And that's what the Lord's Supper is a remembrance of, his death. That covers our sin. His body is represented in the cracker that you have there, was given for us, and his blood was shed. And it's an atoning blood, a covering blood. It's represented in the juice. That you eat, drink, and remember your Savior. And, and the scripture calls us to do something, to examine ourselves, to repent of known sin. To repent of sin in our lives and, and to seek to reconcile broken relationships. That we do that each and every week. We're reminded of the gospel. We're reminded of the work of Christ. We're reminded that we know what love is because we have met Jesus. Love came down and died for us that we may be able to remember that this morning. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we do love you and we thank you for your grace and your mercy. We thank you for this opportunity that we have had to gather in your name and to worship and praise you. And Lord, we are so thankful that you have come down to save us. Lord, that we can find satisfaction, true satisfaction in the work of Christ, we can find satisfaction in giving everything in our lives over to God. Even those dark, sinful places, we can hand it over to you. Lord, we thank you for the good news of your resurrection, that death is not the end of our story, but life, eternal life. Lord, we thank you that you have given us a purpose in loving you with everything that we have, but also with loving other people and shining a light in the dark places. Lord, would you instill within us a desire as we walk out of this place to be salt and light in this community, to love other people as you have loved us. And as we receive these elements this morning, these symbols in the Lord's Supper, that we would eat and drink and remember our Savior, that we would repent of sin and that we would seek to reconcile broken relationships. And Lord, we pray also for those in the room who may be skeptical of you or in unbelief, God, that, that your Holy Spirit would be at work in this place and this morning through the power of your word and that you would fill that person with your Holy Spirit this morning so that they would receive you as Lord and Savior of their life. And Lord, we pray that you would empower, if someone has made that decision, that they would come forward and they would seek prayer from our elders that will be across the front of the room. And as we stand and sing, that we would sing as people who have been redeemed by the blood of Christ. And as we leave here this morning, that we would give generously to the mission and work of the local church. And we pray these things through the power of the name of your son, Jesus Christ, and all of God's people said, Amen.